but we believe in this particular business, in this case, it's Google, we have the ability and we have the vision to actually bring that into fruition. So an act of artistry is nothing more than conjuring something up from our heart and soul and our imaginative capabilities, and then bringing that into being, making that happen through a process of magic, maybe, or manifestation. Welcome to Create New Features, a show about thought-provoking ideas and practices you can use to create and shape your future in life and in business. Join Aviv Shahar, author and innovation strategy consultant, as he shares his proven strategies that have helped clients create breakthrough results. Aviv has guided executives at Fortune 100 companies, and now he wants to help you. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders and explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Stephen Morris. Stephen is a brand and culture advisor and speaker and the author of The Beautiful Business. He partners with business leaders to mine, articulate, and activate the unique belief systems to create organizational integrity, connected cultures, and evolved brands. We want to reflect on all these and to inquire about the inspiration that guided and continues to guide his work. Stephen, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Eve, it is absolutely my pleasure, and I'm so thrilled to be here and to wander into the deep waters of this conversation and see what comes out of today and, and even perhaps the rest of our lives. Well, so let me dive at the deep end and ask you directly about your signature line. Your signature line in your email says, there is nothing more powerful than a united group of souls ignited in a common cause with love at the core. What's the inspiration of this observation and and why do you use that as your signature line? Yeah, we could perhaps have a whole conversation and maybe this is the the exact deep waters to, to stem ourselves into. But this particular line is really a mantra. It's my purpose. It's my promise. It's why I do what I do. It's how I do what I do. And it's what I, how I serve the world. So, you know, if we break this particular sentence down, which is really an invitation as well as a proclamation, there's nothing more powerful than a united group of souls ignited in a common cause with love at the core. So I believe that there is nothing more powerful than a united group of souls. When human beings band together with a common cause, whatever that common cause is, they become a mighty force, an unignorable force, a force that does not just good for business, but good for people, good for the planet, and ideally good for profit. And so when I work with organizations like I do, this is exactly how I serve them. And when I say it's the invitation and a proclamation, A lot of people who see the work that I do or look at the work that I do in the world and read this particular sentence, they understand this is also part of what they want in their business. They want 
a united group of souls who are, you know, the employees within their organization, but not limited to just employees. It is inclusive of the employees, the investors, all stakeholders within the business, the partners within the business, and even the customers. When those customers become ignited or united and united or behind and even ignited from the purpose of the organization, all of a sudden you create what I call a beautiful business. So it it is... It's a statement that I believe business can be a significant force for good in this world. And when we bond together as human beings, then we can pretty much achieve anything. And I think we've proven that through history over and over again. And the love at the core, just to be transparent, was one of the things when I first wrote the sentence, it didn't include the love at the core. And I started thinking about, well, there are points in the human history where People bonded together in a common cause, which wasn't necessarily good for humanity. But I do believe that we put love into this particular mindset and not just the sentence, but the activation of it. Then all of a sudden, where it becomes a passion play and not just a, a business that works for profit, but a business that works for some sense of good and improving the world, even if it's the world of the customers for that particular business. And the striking element there right in the beginning is when you talk about united group of souls, you include the soul element. It's insufficient to talk about the mind or the brain or the idea or even the inspirations. You you declare overtly souls. What's the significance of that for you? Oh, well, you hit on it. You know, it's, you know, one way to write the sentence would be a united group of people or a united group of individuals or a united group of beliefs. I think it's really important to include soul into the conversations, the considerations and the applications that we're having in our world of business right now. And frankly, not just in the world of business, but in all of what we're experiencing in our world. You know, the, the human condition is paradoxical. We are these beautiful moving entities that are part on one side, primal beings connected to the the physical world, the animal kingdom, the natural world around us. And that includes all of our physiology and all of our psychology. But the other side of us, which makes us the human paradox that we are is we're animated by these mysterious and unseen forces, which now the soul comes into the conversation. And so I have never heard, it's so interesting that you point out the soul question within this sentence. I've never heard a business leader recoil, express concerns or anything to that nature. The fact that I'm using soul in this particular invitation and perhaps because it's done in, in the context of this sentence and it, you know, I feel like I take two big risks in this sentence, one of which is the use of the word soul and one of which is the, the, the use of the word love. And, uh, you know, but, I've, but I've, everyone in our personal lives, all, the, all of us business leaders in our personal lives, we realize that we have a soul, regardless of your religious beliefs and things like that. And we live based on love. We love the life that we're living. We love the business that we're shaping. We love the people that we love personally and professionally. 
And so I think the infusion, the inclusion of soul within this particular context and even having conversations in the world of business around soul is, is, are the kinds of conversations that we would all benefit from these days. Indeed, indeed. And there are, there is an invitation there for few layers of consideration because yes, we can say the soul of a business, that would mean something different than the soul that actually inhabit a person. And so we use the word soul in different ways. And the beauty is you don't need to, by declaring that, to go into deep metaphysical, spiritual, philosophical inquiry. Although if somebody like me I bump into a conversation with you, that will come up. So that's great. With that, let me lead directly to the next big question, which is how do you define, therefore, with everything you just painted, the business you're in? What is the business you're in? Yeah. Well, you you may have inadvertently touched on it, but I do actually think that the business that I'm in is identifying and activating the heart and soul of organizations. So now we're talking about the soul of an organization, this energetic entity that exists at the center of the organization, which all organizations have, whether or not their organization is conscious of it or not, or consciously nurturing it or tending to it. So the business that I'm in is helping to identify that, activate that, infuse that within the leadership team so that they're aware of what that heart and soul is all about. I call it purpose, promise, vision, core values, things of that nature. And then take that from the leadership team, apply it into the culture, regardless of how big that company is, and then ultimately express that or begin to express that to the outside world, which is usually called brand or brand marketing. So it is the inclusion of that triangulation of leadership, culture, and brand as it connects to business strategy and activating the heart and soul so that the heart and soul of the business is infused into the business strategy and into everything that it does day in and day out. And when you talk about the heart and soul of the business, I hear a sense of alignment, as you say, from purpose to strategy, to culture, such that we are able to capture the minds and hearts of all stakeholders involved. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't believe that, you know, and we've seen this happen in the world of business when when we activate only the mind or only the strategy, then you're pulling people along and you're trying to have an intellectual exercise within the world of business. So you do have to tap into the emotional side of the human being and connect the heart and the mind together so that the business then becomes unified. So the word that I tend to use in this particular context is integrity. That which exists internally is aligned with the actions of the externally, that which we say we do, that which we think we feel. And a business can operate with those particular mindsets too. People that are in business love the idea and the concept of business. People that are not involved in business somehow never find this word to be very warm or attractive. But you actually talk about business and business leaders and entrepreneurs as creatives and creators. Make that bridge for me, please, in terms of how you you see that. Yeah. 
One of the things that I think we should probably come to ground on is the fact that all business, or even let's just go into the the system that Western culture exists in, which is currently called capitalism, is a construct of man. So it is it is a made up system that has some assumed rules to it, but you know sometimes we treat those rules as hard rules more li- rather than invented constructs. So capitalism or doing business can be done in any particular way, shape, or form that the business leader decides they want to do business. And so when we begin to think about, well, let's let's just break down the reality that there isn't any exact rules in business other than potentially to stay in business and then obviously the legal things that would keep the guardrails in line so that you know businesses that might be practicing or thinking about practicing illegal and nefarious things you know there's a system of checks and balances but then how a business begins to think about what a business is or how a business owner begins to think about what they can develop within their business is frankly an act of imagination and so one of the core things that i think about is the human condition is the the ability for us human beings to be imaginative human beings. You know, we've created and constructed this thing called capitalism. We've created and constructed these things called businesses and a free market system and society. So why then wouldn't we apply the imaginative process, which is at the core of what it means to be human in a form of, let's just call it artistry or acts of, you know, living in the world of possibilities. You think about what Google has done and, you know, the the founders of Google thinking about, well, organize the entire web so that it's searchable, findable, and accessible to anyone. Well, that in and of itself, in my opinion, is not just an act of imagination, but it's an act of artistry and an act of human artistry that says, I envision that this possibility out there exists. It doesn't yet exist, but we believe in this particular business, in this case, it's Google, we have the ability and we have the vision to actually bring that into fruition. So an act of artistry is nothing more than conjuring something up from our heart and soul and our imaginative capabilities, and then bringing that into being, making that happen through a process of magic, maybe, or manifestation. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of it is strategic thinking, hard work, will, perseverance over time, but a big deal of that begins with these acts of human imagination. That's why I believe that, you know, we think about people like, I don't know, Steve Jobs, for instance, or Jeff Bezos, or people that who are, you know, very well propped up as dignitaries in the field of business. They're really just makers. All they did was imagine these things into being and, and had the perseverance behind their vision to be able to make those things happen. So I do believe that you know some of the purest acts of business are actually acts of artistry, they're acts of beauty, and they're, they tap into our unique ability as human beings to imagine these things into being. So the imaginative, the act of artistry, all these are natural segues to ask about a beautiful business. What is a beautiful business, which happens to be the name of your book? <laughs> Well, so here's where I begin to backpedal a little bit. 
I can talk about the book and I can talk about what the book is. But your question of what is a beautiful business is a tricky one in that the interesting thing about the word beauty is that by definition, it is subjective by nature. So how you or I or someone else who might be listening could or would describe their own beautiful business or what they envision or believe a beautiful business is will vary from person to person. And I kind of love that. I kind of love that it's sort of up to the business leader to decide on their own what their own version of a beautiful business is. But if the question is, what is the book about? And what is the book really looking to sort of invite, conjure, and even as it's an actionable manifesto to create an unignorable business with love at the core, it is an invitation for a way of doing business that has to do with a sense of leadership artistry much like we just talked about, knowing full well and activating a sense of agency over the business leader's envisioned process to create or conjure whatever they envision they want to make out of their business. And then it's a process of delving into the heart and soul of their organization to define what is their driving purpose, why does their business or why should their business or why do they want the business to exist beyond simply making money? Because I can tell you right now, the, the, the world has enough businesses that are just in it for profit. And we are heading to a time and place where businesses, I believe, have a massive opportunity. And I would even go so far as say is responsibility to think more broadly about how they define the success of the outcomes of their business beyond simply profit. And so the book is is the new way. It's the middle way. It's the way of not just creating a nonprofit organization, although a beautiful business can be nonprofit, but it's a way of making a business entity as an act of artistry that moves the world forward, improves the lives of everyone involved, all the people involved, and ideally the planet at the same time. And it includes everything from social justice to environmental effects and things of that nature. But it's really an invitation for the business leader to begin to think about their business as an act or an entity that creates awe and transcendence into this world. So let's rethread through several themes there. First, um, how do you mean a sense of agency when you talk about the business leader, the business owner, and you use the term sense of agency? You mean you mean what by that? What I mean by that is that when we have agency, we recognize the choices that are in front of us. And by having a sense of agency, we, we begin to see the, the horizon or the trajectory forward of our business as a viewpoint of responsibility. And now all of a sudden, when I know that I have options in front of me and I have the ability to exercise those options, then I begin to lean into my own version of agency. And then it leads into this other question, which is now that I have these wide array of nearly unending choices in front of me in terms of how I want to run my business, grow my business and evolve that business, what matters most to me Mm -hmm. and me, the business leader or us, the business leader team or the founding team or whatever. And then that sense of agency invites us into an act of, well, what does matter? What are, what are the things such as the driving purpose 
the you know the values that we bring within the business what good are we trying to accomplish within the world and so that active agency or that sense of agency is claiming one's opportunity as a business leader to exercise that into whatever direction we choose to exercise it in or to express it in so let's pause here and stay with purpose and and make a detour to your journey with purpose and then pick up on the other side again elements of the the book and, and the inquiry into uh, a beautiful business when you trace your journey with with purpose wh- where do you trace it to at, at what point do you have the the inquiry of purpose awaken with you and just give me the the arc of the purpose journey for you that leads you to your ability to articulate what you're now articulating yeah I think so I'm in my mid 50s and you know as I look back over the arc of time and my life you know I feel like there's these junctures that I suspect this is partially true or mostly true for most of us as we go through a, a life worth examining or examined life as Plato would say. And, you know, I'll go back into, you know, my late teens or early 20s when I began to think about, okay, I'm going to leave home and I'm going to go out and go to college and what do I want to do, what do I want to study. And, you know, it's interesting in Western culture, we're asked the question, when you grow up, what do you want to be? And, you know, usually I find it interesting, that particular question, it's all about vocation. And the question isn't laced with what kind of human being do you want to be? But what do you want to do? Like, what business do you want to be and what vocation do you want to follow and things like that? And so because that particular question is so ingrained within Western culture, at least here in the United States, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that question exists in other cultures. I'd be very curious about that. But it was ingrained in my world. And so I began to ask the question, well, you know, how do I make not just a, a vocational journey that's you know, interesting to me and fulfilling, but also as I began to think about a life journey, how do I do that in such a way that that taps into the things that I'm not only interested in, but what I feel like my talents or or unique skill sets are, curiosities maybe back then. So, you know, back in high school, you don't really have a sense of mastery over very much, especially from a vocational standpoint. So when I began to think about, well, what do I want to do? I thought about artistry and and artistic pursuit. And so I went off and got accepted into a a great school that have a a liberal arts program, but a very good fine arts program. And that particular school was perfect for me because it was a small school and it allowed me to pursue my curiosities in liberal arts, which I'll talk about, but also to pursue my depth of curiosity that had to do with fine arts. So I went to the school up in Boston and studied with a protege of Mark Rothko in a painting program. And I thought I was going to be a painter. But what I discovered through the liberal arts studies is, was my deep curiosity around psychology, sociology, and philosophy. And sort of the center of the, the themes that run within those particular fields of study is, you know, why do we exist as human beings? What drives us to do what we do? And so as I began to take classes and get a couple of different minors in philosophy and psychology, as well as getting a fine arts degree, I began to meld together the questions of 
well, what makes us tick as human beings, what drives us, what motivates us, what what is historically, you know, a life worth worth living that's well examined. And then how does that apply into the arts or the field of expression? And so, um, you know, in my early college days, it was the examination of those things. And I don't know that I would have back then called it purpose. I don't know that there was out loud conversations around purpose back then. There might have been with some people. There certainly wasn't in my world. And so I pursued that. And um, then I did this thing where I sort of rolled the dice of life and left uh, some decisions up to fate. And so I found myself in my junior year in undergraduate school and was both interested in a degree in fine arts and pursuing uh, the world of painting and artistry and all of that that had to offer. And it was also... I took an internship over over a summer working for what was then a design studio. And back in the day when I was going through school, this was pre-computers. So all the design work was done, quote unquote, by hand. <laughs> and so I was hired because I had illustration capabilities by this design studio up in Marblehead, Massachusetts, to do comps and illustrations and you know sketches for ideas that the design team that was doing. And I became very, very fascinated with the idea of communication and story for the world of business, because what I began to look at was how we tell stories in the world of business and how that moves this chain reaction of communication and connection from one business to a set of customers, to the set of customers that respond to the business and how that business responds to what the customer's wants and needs are. And I became just utterly fascinated with that particular process. And so the role of the dice began to look like this. I said, well, I'm going to apply to graduate programs in either design, which was MFA programs for master fine arts programs in design, or, and I'm going to study, I'm going to apply to graduate programs in fine arts and painting programs. And so I think I applied to six or eight different graduate programs for each direction. And then I said, well... I'll leave it to the fates and see who comes back. And, you know, I, I grew up with not very much money. So part of it was applying for assistantships and scholarships and things like that. And I said, well, let's first find out where I get accepted. And secondarily, let's see if anyone offers some type of tuition package that says, you know, we would love to have you at the school. And not only that, we would like you know, for you to study here and in, you know, in certain capacity that would benefit me financially or I wouldn't have to, you know, take, you know, $150,000 out in student loans, that kind of thing. And so I was accepted to just about every program that I applied to. And, you know, so I was like, okay, well, this is great. This, this doesn't solve my conundrum of leaving it up to fate. And then I got a letter one day from a graduate program at Temple University Tyler School of Art, which was their design program. And so I got, I was offered what was called an assistantship which is a, a working paid program where my tuition would be free so long as I ran a lab and helped tutor some students and things like that. And they also happen to have a first-rate painting program. And I said, mm-hmm. I would gladly go to this particular university. I love the school. I love where it was located. I love the teachers there. And so long as I can also take graduate-level painting classes as well as do the design work at hand. And I said, I'm going to promise that, you know, I'm not going to, it's not going to take away from my core studies, but as long as the professors there at the graduate program and the painting school was welcome to have me, which I had to submit portfolio of work there. And 
So I got to do both. I got to study, uh, get a master's degree in graphic design, MFA from Temple University Television School of Art, and then take graduate level painting classes with their painting instructor, Margot Mogolis, who was very world renowned in, in her academic work and her work as a, as a figurative artist. So, so, so when you listen to your own story, even just this part of the story, what is the teachable uh, moral there about purpose? Because I hear you inquiring, you're searching, you're looking to find guidance. And in some way, the, the experience, the universe, whatever way you choose to tell the story, conspiring to guide you in the trajectory that will ultimately reveal to you your purpose. So purpose is something we are discovering both inside out and outside in. Mm-hmm. That's what I hear in the story. Yeah, I think that's really, really well said. You know, a purpose is both, I think it is a fusion between the pursuance of our curiosities or our passions and the living of the exploration of those things all at the same time. Because you can't really intellectualize purpose. You actually have to feel and behave your way in and through it. And so if if there is a moral to my sort of historical story and that narrative that I just unfolded there, I think the invitation is to pursue your curiosities with a sense of passion, but don't get so held up on tight gripping outcomes that might limit actually what your purpose can actually be. You know, one of the things that I realized, and this was a hindsight recognition from my time in graduate school and even that process that I just unfolded for you is that I don't know that I could have actually created or fully curated the magic of leaving some of this up to the powers and the mystery of the universe by simply putting myself out there and acknowledging my curiosities and pursuing them from an open manner standpoint. I allowed much more to happen than I could have simply conjured on my own. Does that make any sense at all? It does, it does. And and I I do wanna pick the story from that point onward, but before I do that, I wanna thread back to the beautiful business and the work you do today and ask specifically with this exploration and developmental stage important in your journey with fine arts, how, are these discoveries and early formative experiences of you exploring your talent with various arts? How is this process informing what you're doing today with teams, with companies, with leaders? How is this part of what you frame as the beautiful business? Yeah, that, uh, let me do my best to stitch those things together because what I think I did for a number of years, and we'll get into this story a little bit, no doubt, is that when I, so I, you know, just do, I'll just do a quick fast forward. So I, you know, graduated with a degree in design, went into the agency world, uh, started working in the agency world and very quickly rose the ranks in the agency world to a creative director. And I was probably 25 or 26 years old as a creative director working for an agency in Washington, D.C., And I think the reason I rose so quickly through the ranks of the industry is that I had that deep curiosity uh, of the questions of what drives us. 
what makes us tick. And so I was asking those questions as a creative director from a business strategy standpoint and a, and a customer centric perspective. And so, you know, the quick fast forward is I worked through a series of agencies and then was quickly burning out working through the agencies because the agency world is, it's not a nine to five job. It is, you know, you're sort of always on, you're burning a lot of hours. I was working in my twenties, you know, seven days a week. And at that point ha- was newly married. And I thought, wow, I'm, this is either going to crash and burn my personal world, including my relationship, or I'm going to have to make some type of significant change. And that significant change took the form of my wife and I literally on our first anniversary, we're heading in a rider rental truck, 24 foot rider rental truck with a, a 1971 VW bus in tow driving from Washington DC out to San Diego to a city where we knew no one. And I thought I would get a job out here in San Diego, which is where I still am when I say out here on the West Coast. And the reality was that there weren't nearly as many sophisticated agencies here in San Diego as what I was used to doing. And I had freelance work and I thought, well, I'll just keep doing the freelance work for a little while and see what comes of it. And one thing led to another and, you know, new business led to other new business. And I realized I had more work that I could possibly do on my own within six months or less than a year. I had two employees working out of the house. And at that point I decided, Oh, Holy goodness. I think I have a business here. And at that point I, you know, rented an office space and popped up, uh, you know, a, a business license and began to build my, my agency. That was in 1994. And, um, what I realized is what I had to do was learn how to be a business person, not just a creative. And, you know, with being an entrepreneur, you all of a sudden, you take the mastery of the industry level skills that you have, business strategy, the design work, the marketing strategy types of things. And now you have to learn how to manage the finances, build systems and processes, manage teams, have hiring and HR principles in place all kinds of things from a business structure standpoint, which, you know, my learning curve went through the roof at that stage. And I went sort of informally back to school and read every book that I could possibly get my hands on, on how to do business, hired consultants and advisors and went to conferences and workshops and all kinds of things to soak up. Well, how can I actually do this and make it, you know, a sound business that isn't just, you know, some fly-by-night type of thing and doing good creative work, but doesn't have, you know, solid profit and predictability and marketing systems built within it or, and that has, you know, good employee systems, uh, which would include, you know, systems of benefits and, you know, compensation packages and, you know, 401ks and all the beautiful stuff that you want to compensate employees with. And so that was a very steep learning process for me. And in in this part... Steve and I, once again, I hear the the teleology of of a of a curious of a life of curiosity. It's not you. It is not that you're saying, "Oh, I'm going to learn how to build a business," and you go into the study of that and all the rest of it. It's that you are discovering that you are already having a business, and the business, in a way, pulls you on and pulls you forward to address all the questions and all the challenges that you face as as when you find yourself all of a sudden managing teams and needing to manage money and all the rest of it. 
Yeah, I think that's really well said. And part of the lesson there from an entrepreneurial perspective is the realization that when you begin to create a business, it does actually begin to create a life of its own. Hmm. While the leaders are responsible for the nurturing of that business, the guidance of that business, the fueling of that business forward, the business begins to have this own sort of energetic entity. And, you know, while the, the leadership team has, you know, a lot, if not nearly all say in how that business is nurtured, there's also this thing where the business begins to have its own energy and begins to become to want to be something greater than just the founder of the business. And this is now because it's infused with many different hearts and minds and souls that contribute to the business. And, you know, no business, no business operates. I had to pause there for a second, but no business I think really operates in a vacuum of the founder or the leader, even the smallest, let's say you take the simplest solopreneurship that exists out there and you take the simplest business systems and processes that possibly can, you still will have things like lawyers involved, accountants involved, these things we call customers involved. And all of those things begin to influence what the business can become. And so I do, I do believe there's an act of sort of curiosity that comes with when we shape a business, we begin to ask the business, what does the business want to become? And that's why I think a purpose is so important because it begins to answer that question through the lens of it's greater than just profit. Not that profit is bad thing. In fact, it's a non-negotiable thing. Profit is the engine for all future of the business. Without profit, the business will not be around tomorrow. Without profit, the business has no room or space to innovate. Without profit, the business has no room or space to compensate or reward the employees. Without profit, it the business can't really effectively market itself. So profit is non-negotiable, but it's not all about profit. And so then this whole system around purpose-oriented asking is a collaborative dance in certain ways. Hmm. And that purpose, I think, begins to have an energy unto itself that then I then go back in hindsight and reflect on this same statement that you started this very conversation out with is there's nothing more powerful than a united group of souls ignited in a common cause with love at the core. And when we're ignited in this common cause, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about purpose. So what happens then in that arc of the story for you? You find yourself with a team and, and your own agency and what happens next? Yeah. Yeah. So I find myself with the team. In a way, I imagine you've recreated what you ran away from. Exactly. Yeah, I did. And worse or better. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's a great point. I, you know, as an entrepreneur, was working back again, you know, six, seven days a week, uh, spending a lot of time, all my free time thinking about the business. And now all of a sudden I have not just a lovely wife, but two young boys. And, you know, um, you know, the role of providership is weighing heavy on me. And I take that responsibility very seriously. And now all of a sudden you take on the responsibility of all the employees and, you know, wanting to nurture them, care for them, compensate them well, create an environment. And, you know, so I'm not just then a master creative or even, you know, business strategist that's serving my clients from a you know brand or business strategy perspective, but I have to be a good leader to the team. I have to be a developer of systems and processes. 
I have to, you know, think about my family and, you know, what ended up in my world is that I put myself on the back burner and, you know, 2013 rolled around. We were doing very significant work at that point for very big companies around the globe. So our clients included Samsung and LG, Sony Electronics, NFL teams, ESPN, large colleges and universities. Uh, and so we were doing work with you know some of the best brands in the world and being very well recognized for it, very well compensated for it. And I was burning out. And mm. I was I had built essentially a prison around myself because of what I felt I needed to do within the business. And so I paused and I did a time tracking experiment over, I think it was a two or three week period and somewhere in the middle of 2013. And the hypothesis was within that time tracking experiment is how am I spending my time? And really the, the more macro version of that picture was how am I living my life? What is my yes. life actually? Yes, because where you spend your time and your energy, these are not your written values. These are your true embodied and acted everyday values, at least in the way you demonstrate them. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so I tracked all of my waking hours in 30-minute increments over the two or three-week period. And you know, at the end of the week, I would tally up those hours and put them into different categories or buckets. And I didn't really, I wasn't super conscious of what exactly why I was doing this, but I had a curiosity of where am I spending my time? And at the end of that two or three week period, I looked at the spreadsheet and I began to assess the amount of time I spent in the wide variety of things that I was spending them on. And then I began to ask myself the question, well, if I were living in my zone of genius, the thing, you know, in the realm where my best self, where I'm most well rewarded and most enlivened by the activities that I'm doing enriches my life. What are those activities? And of those activities that I believe fall into that realm or zone of genius, how much of my time am I actually spending in those things? And so the wake up call within that two week period was that I was only spending about 12% of my waking hours in my zone of genius. In other words, the way you interpreted exercising integrity as the leader of the business broke down your own personal integrity. The, the two were no longer in alignment. Yes. Yeah. Wow. I had, and I had to do a reconciliation to myself. And it took me quite a while to come to ground on what that actually meant for my world. And it was at that point that I that I realized I wasn't living the life that I wanted to live, and that it's that I had to let go of the way that I was living, and even to a large extent, the identity that I had built up around myself that I was trying to live up to, which wasn't my own identity or the identity that I wanted. So, two questions yeah. about this next phase: How do you go through the next transition? And what is the most difficult aspect of the transition? I can answer with now more clarity and hindsight of that. I don't know because I was so caught up in it. 
it was, it's hard to, you know, as they say, it's, it's impossible to read the label of the bottle from the inside of the bottle. Right. So I was so inside my life that I didn't realize what my life had accumulated to. And so I didn't really understand all of it until I began to unravel certain things. And what I realized I needed to do was package up the business and transition out of it, and which for me ended up to be an acquisition. I sold it and merged it with another company. The hardest part for it for me, and I think I'm finally coming out of this, that acquisition wrapped up in 2017 for me, mid-2017, June of 2017, and there was still some transition time with this with the other business that acquired it. The hardest part for me was the unraveling of the identity, mm. which if I no longer was the CEO of this agency and I had spent so much of my waking hours building that up and shaping my identity around it, who was I without it? And I honestly had to go through probably a few years of unlayering this sort of outer skin that I had created of this identity in order to get into a core attribute or closer to a core attribute of who I believed I was or how I wanted to be in this world. In certain ways, you know, now here we are in the launch week of, of my book called The Beautiful Business. In certain ways, I actually don't think I knew the answer to that until I, I processed the book out into the world. And so in a weird way, writing the book was the answer to that question. You were healing. It was a self-therapeutic uh, reconciliation, rediscovery, reauthoring, all of the above kind of an exercise. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's worth saying, and this is a, a recent realization to me, is that most artwork in, in its broadest definition has a cathartic element to it in that I believe that we practice forms of art, even in the world of business, to both express and to heal, not just our own personal worlds, but the world around us. And, you know, so when we think about, well, what is the intent of art? work in whatever form. And again, I would invite people to think about that in the broadest definition possible and even apply it into the world of business, which is it's intended to move people from one way of either being or one way of seeing or one way of feeling to a transitory state where they begin to live and see and feel differently. And so it is a cathartic element, not just for the creator, for the artist, for the business artist, for the human artist, because in the act of the creation of the piece itself, where the pieces, they heal themselves through the act of creation and delving and expression. But then, you know, the gift of the artwork when it's sort of created and then given out to the world to decide, here is this thing that I made for you, respond to it however you want. There's a cathartic element in that too, in that we can heal humanity. We can actually improve people's lives and change their state for the better. If you were able to imbue the deepest significance of your transformation, then the piece of art 
whether a painting, poetry, music, or, or whatever, will carry some agents, some, some catalytic agent that can be transformative for others. So, so staying still just uh, with these two, three years where you're trying to obviously go through the messy process of propping up the business to be able to sell it. I, I understand all that side, packaging it correctly, but also unwinding your sense of identity as somebody that created the business. When you look at this now from where you are today, what's the, what's the teachable, transferable insights from that very personal discovery process? If you need to distill the, the essence of that discovery of the insight and, and transfer it as a message, obviously, it's probably spread all over your book, but it, the essence of that part of the journey, rediscovering Stephen's essence as a human being, independent of needing to be the master of the universe in an important agency that, that serves great clients. Yeah. I suppose that there's a series of lessons within that or cathartic learnings within that. The one thing I would say is, for sure, while we put our passions into our work, or as a business leader or an entrepreneur, we put our passion into our business, we are not our business and our business is not us. So the human entity that defines our own sense of agency and sense of knowing of who we are and how we exist in the world is constantly evolving. This is part of an examined life. Because we, the beautiful thing is, assuming we wake up tomorrow and are given, again, the gift of life and breath and opportunity, we get to choose and choose again how we, what matters to us, how we, what our value system is, how we affect the world, and how we affect the people around us. Because we are an evolving act of our own creation, we human beings, those things will expand over time. And for me, because in in the business that I had created before, what I realized is the primary function of that business was marketing. And it was a, a process of storytelling around businesses that I didn't necessarily have a say in to how they ran their business. We were responsible for telling their stories and connecting their stories or their products and services to customers. But I wasn't always the one who said, well, I believe that, you know, maybe this product isn't as good as we think it is or as good as we're being asked to say that it is. And so this, you know, the world of marketing can have a kind of a shadowy side to it where, you know, there's some nefarious practices or sometimes there are businesses out there that really just want to chase customers and they just need more and more and more and not better, better, better. And so because it was a marketing agency, that was the business that we we're in of telling stories. Now, certainly I could say that we had a choice of who we could work with, but sometimes you don't know the heart and soul of that organization until you actually get involved with them. And so there is that element of the learning of you are not your business, but your passions can be your business. And then the knowing that we as individuals constantly evolve, and then we get to choose and choose again how we show up and what we get to do. So just because someone has built a, a mini empire around them, 
you know, regardless of the size of the business, that could be in some people's world, uh, you know, a five person firm or a 5,000 person company. The CEO of the 5,000 person company is not the company. And the same thing with the five person firm. And while, again, the leader has a lot to say about that, the leader can always choose and choose again. And what I realized is in at a certain point, I was on autopilot in my business and was beating the machine, so to speak. And I and I had stopped taking agency over my everydayness and was I had had lost the service of my own world and service to the world of my employees and clients. And I think that that's where I kind of got lost, uh, maybe a lot or maybe a little bit lost. And so I think that's a learning to constantly check into is the business or the business leader that you're showing up as today, is this truly the person you want to be? Is it, are you fully activating your own agency and your choices? Or is it time to choose or choose again or evolve the business or evolve your life, which is what I chose to do? This sounds to me, Stephen, as as even more than learning it's it's a meta learning about the journey of life if you connect if we connect the dots between that transition and the earlier transition you're describing the theme is the archetypal theme is one of coming in and out of alignment and treating and recognizing that life is a discovery journey and as we evolve what used to present itself as satisfactory conditions in a sense of congruency of who I am and what I am about, as we evolve, now the cosmology changed. We changed, the cosmology changed. And now you're describing to us and inviting us to be in touch with your own journey on in the interior while you, you develop and manifest wonderful things in the world and to discover when is the time for you to do course correction because you have perhaps veered too far out of the zone you now need to be in. This seems to be a meta idea, a a meta theme for the journey, the evolutionary journey of of a life, certainly a well-examined life. Yeah, I was going to bring Plato back into it. And because it isn't, you know, Plato's invitation there to examine one's life isn't a one and done scenario. It's really a very much a daily day in and day out type of question. And the challenge in, you know, when we as human beings go into these deep rabbit holes of passionate pursuits, we can sometimes get lost in the cavernous elements of spelunking our way through, you know, the worlds that we're exploring. And we can get into things that on one side are utterly exhilarating, but on the other side may not be exactly the key that we belong rabbit holing ourselves through. Mm. And, you know, sometimes it's very worthwhile to backtrack, even though we've, you know, delved into a deep realm of passion in whatever that attribute is, be it, uh, you know, a, a study of pursuits or a business venture, or even a relationship that we might have. All of that should be examined on a near consistent or near constant basis to just ask ourselves, is this right for me now? Is this Hmm. still true and aligned with the passion and the correlation of what I believe 
a, a life worth living actually means. Because, you know, the person, you know, you take marriage, for instance, right? So my lovely wife, Christine, and I have been married for 28 years together for, you know, 30 plus. And I can guarantee you that the person that she married back in 1993 when we got married is not the same person that she's married to now and vice versa. So we have been lucky in that we've evolved together and in, you know, relatively similar and simultaneous tracks and paces and same direction, luckily. But that could have easily not have happened uh, by pure life circumstance and, and luck and things like that. But by us on a regular basis, checking in with one another saying, hey, do we still want to be married? Is this still working for us? Is this still the life we want to be living? And how do we co-collaborate in those things? I think a business leader can ask themselves the same question because we have a relationship with our business as well. Well, so right there in in this um, thing you framed, there is a whole conversation or a whole book by itself because when you talk about the trajectory of marriage, you're describing three parallel, if successful, parallel evolutionary journeys. There is person A going through some discovery and learning and and evolution. There is person B going through learning and discovery and evolution. And then the relationship, which is which is a living domain, a living entity, almost unto itself, go through the evolution. And these three, they're not always every day, every minute, completely coherent. They sometimes, one person go through a certain acceleration and discovery and so on. So how do you weave these three together? What you're proposing is a similar challenge and invitation ought to be recognized and realized in your professional life, certainly when you're an entrepreneur creating a business. Yeah, I think it's very, very well said. And you take that that triangulation of, of marriage. So the, the, the me, the they, and then the thing that exists between them. I think the same parallel can be made for the business leader's journey too, in that there's the, there's the business leader, there's the business. And there is then the relationship that the business leader has with the business and their own vocational journey as it relates to that. I think we're seeing a fair bit of this right now in the reconciliation of whatever we want to call it, the big quit or the, you know, the great resignation, which could, you know, has double meaning to it, which is on one side, you know, people are leaving jobs of, you know, especially of cultures that are no longer serving them. But I think the bigger version of the great resignation also has to do with, you know what, I give up. I'm going to stop playing the game of more, 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 or seeking, 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 or pretending that work has to come first. And I think, you know, the business leader should be asking themselves that question. What is my relationship to the business itself? And is it serving me as much as I am serving it? And is it what I want to be doing now? Let me pause there and, and ask a couple of questions. First, this the great resignation that's underway, certainly in the US, but not just in the US. So what is the highest level, the, the, the meta-level story or interpretation that you see in this over and above what you already said? Did, is, it, is it a reflection of a moment in time? Is it a symptom of a bigger transitional something, that, that a crisis in the entire paradigm? How do you interpret what that means? 
And, and just to ground people in, in the data, the last thing I heard is that like, what, like five years of workforce decided to not come back to work and step back and, and find a different way to address their needs, either because they've recognized they have enough or because they've recognized they will, they will solve differently the needs of their life going forward. Yeah, the, the last data set that I saw was August 2021 numbers in which 4.3 million Americans have quit their jobs. That represents 2.9% of the entire U.S. workforce. So, you know, just round it up to 3% of the entire U.S. workforce has quit or resigned. That's significant, even in, in a world where and there is no historic parallel to that kind of a decision in such a large scale. Yeah, the closest thing would be in a very good employee-centric market. And by that, I essentially mean that employees have lots of options rather than employees ha employers having control. The employees have lots of options out in front of them in that there's more jobs available than people can actually fulfill from a workforce standpoint. So... Even those numbers, when, when the market is incredibly leaning in the direction of employees, these numbers are off the charts historical. Uh, so there's nothing historically even close to it. So I love the question of what's it all about? What's the impetus behind all of this? And, you know, I, I hear a lot of conversations and I think, you know, some people talk rightly that it's about, you know, here we are, it's no accident that we're coming out of COVID or wherever we seem to be in COVID migrating out of it, or at least it's not in its highest peak that it once was. And during COVID, people had a reclamation. We were forced to be sequestered and kind of for the first time in probably an entire generation, maybe longer, we're forced to be with our own thoughts and be with ourselves. And when people who are not used to doing that begin to look at their life and to examine or re-examine what actually is most important to me, reclamation comes of here's what my value system is in life. Here are where my priorities are. And I believe the biggest thing that's happening here is that there is a reconciliation of life comes first, not the old paradigm, which is work comes first and I will build and or design my life around it. I think the big paradigm shift that we're experiencing right now is that people are designing or infusing a sense of design and agency into their lives and into their lifestyle and what their value systems are, what is most important to them. And they're looking to fit their work in, into that or integrate much more so the two things together. And I think there's a, a wide variety of things at play, not just COVID, but I think, you know, when we think about, for instance, the organized religion systems around the world, and especially in certain religions here in the U.S. that, you know, like the Catholic Church, for instance, where people are migrating away from the church, we're looking for more meaning. Mm. And we're looking for more meaning in our lives because we don't, we, we're, we're not finding it from a social standpoint in the collective congregations of our, our faith or our, our systems of worship. And I think what we're trying to do is integrate a belief system, which 
which is designed to create a fulfilling life that has meaning to it. And I think that meaning, which is why I infuse soul in, into part of what I talk about, is that human beings realize that this life is worth living, worth examining, and that also includes our personal, our spiritual, and our relational belief systems. And putting those things first, you know, a hundred years ago, you know, we look at the role of religion as an entrenched or ingrained part of our society, which much more so than what we have now. Yeah. And so I think what's at play is really, and I don't know if I'm articulating this very well, is a reclamation around meaning and meaning, infusing more meaning into our lives and not just into serving the work that we do. You are connecting three or four different trends, uh, macro trends, the meaning crisis and the, the need to, to uh, reclaim and rediscover meaning, the um, somewhat forced growth paradigm of the economy, and the more, more, faster, faster, greater, greater drive. Has that propulsion reached its wall and is looking to... to uh, even though when you look currently at the stock market, <laughs> it continues to, to push into more and more, but but how and why? So there is, a, there is a financial monetary paradigm, there is an economic paradigm, there is a there is a personal paradigm. You're describing certain unfolding crises where the the pandemic created just a pause necessary for some to do their uh, reassessment and reclamation. And, and you wonder how the rest of this decade is going to unfold. I don't think we've seen the last thing to happen this decade. I think we are to see more of those tectonic shifts that are shaping some of what you're describing. Yeah. And I would add the other clear trend that, that is happening is we're becoming much more of a global society. While there's a lot of us against them mindset, you know, and that's this happens from country to country, but it certainly happens here in the US where, you know, d- different political paradigms point at one another and say, you're the enemy. But the, the other side to that is the recognition, mostly because of the internet and our ability to easily connect around the world. You know, just this week, I've had conversations with people in Australia and people in throughout Europe and all over the U S and South America and, you know, on and on and on. And it's because we can all reach one another much more effectively because of this, you know, the integrated inner interconnectivity of, of our, not just our technology, but our, our, our sense of humanity. And I think the more that we live within that sense of reality, the more that we realize, I believe that we're all inextricably connected to one another and I think that there is this, maybe it's a, a subconscious baseline or drumbeat to the reminder that we're all inextricably connected to one another and how we can find meaning is through the relational side of how we live. And I mean that in our close-in relationships, but also our global relationships and our global connectivity. To circle back to the the book, uh, The Beautiful Business, and then to lend to a few closing questions. Given everything we just explored, what are some of the questions you hope 
business leaders or anyone reading the book will will live with and and will make part of their ongoing reflection yeah great question i think probably the biggest overarching question that i that i hope people business leaders begin to ask and explore answers to and some of them can be found within the book but some they're going to have to find out on their own is if i'm to make up my own rules make up my own way of doing business and even to define business success in much broader terms what does that mean for me how can i as a business leader embrace the sense of responsibility and agency to create a set of outcomes that are actually meaningful to me to the leadership team to my team and to my customers now within that that's a very complex set of questions but i i hope people begin to pursue the answers to those questions and not just go through autopilot and pretend that business as usual is a healthy system per se i also hope that people begin to question what a good business actually means and what a good business can actually be and not base it upon the historical recognition and the measuring sticks that are typically propped up by some of the you know largest media outlets out there and that includes by the way this mythology around the overnight sensation the mythology around wealth as the ultimate trophy in life and the accumulation of assets as the you know what it means to be happy and you know we've known this for a long time that money is not the answer to our woes money is not not the key to happiness it is actually fulfillment and we just lost um, an amazing dignitary in the world of mindset thinking meal high chicks at me high passed away 2 weeks ago the author of flow and he i believe tapped into a way of living life that had to do with you know these optimal experiences that are tangential to happiness in fact probably more important than than the temporary or temporal version of happiness which has to do with life fulfillment and one of the things that he said in that book although i'm not sure if he said it overtly but he certainly came close to saying something like this which is you cannot chase life fulfillment or happiness directly you actually have to turn sideways to it or pursue something that has that's in the neighborhood of that and in the pursuance of that you will discover or happiness or some sense of life fulfillment will will ensue but you cannot pursue it and i think what i hope is that business leaders recognize that that is an opportunity for them too and even you know when we take this tricky little conundrum of profit i actually believe that the indirect pursuit of profit through acts of service will will actually garner greater profit now i'm not going to promise that and i don't want people to feel like i'm tricking them into building a profitable business by propping up a whitewashed or greenwashed or you know some false version of creating a business that's meaningful but I have seen it happen over and over and over again for the businesses that I work with that the ones that pursue a more purpose-driven service-oriented mindset actually end up creating greater profit at the end anyhow and mm. more engagement and happier employees and happier customers 
and better for the planet altogether. So what I hope people begin to ask and explore are those questions. And the other suggestion inside what you framed there is that um, you cannot buy, you cannot even labor uh, to find grace. You need to uh, live a life where you allow yourself to be intercepted by grace. And grace in that, I don't just mean it in the religious sense, but I, I mean it in the sense of what accompanies and envelops your life when you find that sense of uh, congruency that you are you're probably expressing your gifts in the service of something other than yourself. And somehow you, your act, and the, the bigger system or the market that you are serving, they come into alignment. And inside that dance, you forget to remember yourself in the egoic sense and you surrender to the, the greater creative act that's available for you and then the universe quivers in your favor and you find abundance that you never even imagined was possible. Absolutely. I think that's perfectly well said. Another way you describe this in the book is you say you have to, um, not you have to, you can wake up every morning and treat the experiment of life as though it is an open canvas, a blank page. Is there any other practical brief of how you, if I'll ask it differently, if we were all to wake up tomorrow morning and see ourselves as artists standing in front of a, an open canvas, what would we all be doing differently? Well, there, there's a couple of things. One thing that's worth saying about that particular predicament that you just envisioned us into, which I love, there's in the world of artistry, no matter how skilled the artist is, there's nothing scarier than the abyss of a blank page or a blank canvas staring in front of them. So then the question of, well, how do we take that fear away? Because then in that blank page, anything, literally anything is possible. Now, every canvas, every page has a frame and an edge to it. And Every time an artist comes up and steps up into that abyss of opportunity, which is the open white or whatever the color canvas is, we have an opportunity to intend something into being. And so the beautiful thing is, is that through the framework of having edges of a canvas in which to say, it's not a whole world that we're painting. We're just going to paint this size canvas today. And the other side to that, which is, I intend to create this type of painting here today. That fusion of edges and boundaries, which are uh, you know, the beautiful act of confinement, actually opens up a greater world of possibility through the framework of having a frame with clear intention as we delve into what that opportunity is. And now all of a sudden, we have a guidance system. We have boundaries like a bowling alley has you know gutters on the side of it we have some boundaries on which we can head towards or stay within and we have an intention of why we're doing what we're doing and what the in, the intended outcomes for those might be for those things might be and that i do believe is a daily practice and a daily set of questions learning to embrace the the boundaries and the constraints and actually seeing and finding within those Tremendous freedom. 
it's a message into relationship it's a message into how you deal with business it's it's a it's a message into so many spaces well we only touched about 60% of what i intended to explore but everything good must come to a landing and we may need to to do a part two to this conversation so my closing question as we bring this to landing is to ask you to reflect on your own quote of uh, mary oliver her question mm-hmm. where she says tell me what is it you plan to do with your one and wild precious life which you just demonstrated in so many ways what else by way of invitation by way of message would you say from that spirit as a, as parting words to anybody listening yeah to uh create new futures please i think there's a a massive potency in simply asking that question and and i would say ask that question not from the answer perspective of your strategic mind but ask your heart that question and the wisdom of the heart will guide you into a much broader much more beautiful answer to Mary Oliver's question which is what is it that you intend to do with this one wild and precious life and within that the way that she frames it in that particular statement and question it is wild and precious and it is wild in that it is alive and it has a life and a breath of its own and it's precious in that it is finite and the beauty of that is that it'll change every day and i think our beautiful opportunity is to embrace the precious side of it and become wild in that embracement thank you thank you very much thank you this was a pleasure thank you for listening aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately what will you capture and apply today You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing. You can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today.